Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is committed to working smarter, cleaner, and greener today for a more sustainable tomorrow. Learn more at prattwhitney.com. And by Dewhop. Dewhop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn how to unlock unlimited connections simply at dohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza, and I'm excited to kick off our next 200 episodes. Thank you all for the well wishes on our 200 episode milestone last week. So much has changed in the airline industry since we opened the first show with Seth Kaplan nearly four years ago. We had a belief then that the airline industry would always provide great content, and boy, did that belief come true. And I have to say, I think for the most part, it has changed for the better. What do you think, Scott McCartney? Well, Ben, it's great to be with you. And I agree. I used to think the airline industry was kind of a reporter's theme park. Uh, there was always something interesting to ride. Despite the challenges of the summer and the very bumpy recovery from the COVID pandemic, I think airlines continue to move people around the world safely and affordably. And while there are still problems to work on and room for improvement, I really do think things are getting better. Um, but Ben, I used to joke when I was writing the middle seat column that if airlines ever figured out how to run their business, I'd be out of a job. And I still think that's true. It's a very complex, very difficult business. There are many different constituencies to address, often with conflicting priorities, and it's constantly changing. There's no better example of that than Cincinnati Northern Kentucky International Airport, which has remade itself after Delta closed its hub there. We'll talk to Candace McGraw, the dynamic CEO of CVG, about the remaking of the airport. I'm really looking forward to a very interesting conversation with her. I am too, Scott. There are some very dynamic airport leaders. We talked to Christina Casotis. We've talked to Joe Lapano. We've talked to others. And it's great to see the new thinking going into the U.S. airports and really around the world. I do think airlines will figure out how to run their businesses better, but the reality is people, machines, and Mother Nature are all unpredictable to some extent. Mm -hmm. And given that the industry depends on all three, there's always going to be things that aren't solved perfectly. <laughs> that, that's a really good way of summing it up. I like that. Ben, I, I was reminded just how crazy and difficult this business is when I was looking at this week's news. Mexico says its army-run airline, yes, run by the army, will take flight in September. 
just a few weeks away with 10 leased Boeing 737-800s and a heavy load of hubris. Mexican President Andreas Manuel Lopez Obrador is a firm believer in government-run business and has said the military is the most trusted and efficient organization in the country. Two weeks ago, the government paid 815 million pesos, which is about $48 million, for the rights and remaining assets of Mexicana. Observers noted that that was a whole lot of money for an airline that died more than a decade ago. But it does include the name, three buildings, and an old flight simulator. The new airline will fly out of Felipe Angeles Airport, which the president has been pushing as a third airport in Mexico City. He canceled the very large Texcoco Airport project in 2018 while it was under construction and then had a former airbase converted into the new third airport. It opened last year and the president was infuriated that Mexico's three main airlines offered only scant service to the new airport, which is about 30 miles from the center of Mexico City and not easy to get to. So he started his own airline. The new Mexicana promises fares 18% to 20% below private competitors, which is curious since two of Mexico's three established carriers are already ultra-low fare carriers, Volaris and Viva Aerobus. Mexicana will be by no means the only airline in the world funded and run by government. Heck, during the pandemic, U.S. airlines were significantly funded by the U.S. government. But I don't think Mexico's three incumbent airlines are extracting huge profits from the marketplace and gouging customers, and they do seem to be providing lots of service domestically and internationally, just not to the president's pet airport. Stay tuned. I think this is really going to be fascinating to watch, Ben. Along with baggage and cargo, Mexicana will be carrying a fair amount of insanity on board, and it could be really destructive for Mexico's existing airlines. I totally agree, Scott, but I think this is a fascinating story to watch. You know, the reports on this airline is that they actually have decent operational experience in a military sense, but I don't see anything that suggests they have any commercial experience. And so saying you want your fares to be low is an easy thing to say. Maybe making money isn't even a goal of this airline. Maybe it's employment. Maybe it's providing more seats to put pressure on the incumbent airlines. But like you said, every seat this airline flies is going to put pressure on Volaris, which is currently the country's biggest airline, and the others. And so it's not going to be a great time for the Mexican airlines, but I don't see this airline as being particularly successful. No, and since it's political, Um, Who knows? It may last only as long as the Mexican president's tenure. 
Um, but I also think it's it's interesting in a broader sense um, in terms of government supporting air service as an economic development issue. Um, this is not all that dissimilar, I suppose, from the Gulf states um, wanting to take the profits from oil and natural gas and create an industry that would outlast energy. Um, and they've, they've done it with air service. So that's why we have Emirates and Qatar and Etihad. And those are government supported because uh, they saw aviation, air travel, as a future business that would uh, support their economy. And, and in a sense, um, this is a ma- you know a massive subsidy for uh, for airports. But we see governments supporting airports and and airlines in different ways, particularly national flag carriers. It's very hard for a lot of countries to think about not having uh, their own airline. We see that a lot in Europe. Um, and if you look around the world, you can uh, look at low fare carriers in Asia and, and everywhere else that really do stimulate the economy when you bring in air service and, and cheap fares. And so in that sense, um, this is not so illogical. Um, I think what's different here is you do have three incumbent airlines that are creative and and doing interesting things and providing lots of air service in lots of places that didn't have air service before. And, and so rather than supporting them, the government is undermining them. And, and I think that's what's different here. I agree, Scott. And it has to be more than just the new airport. Because if it were just the new airport, they could have offered incentives or subsidies for the existing airlines to fly more at the new airport and spent a lot less money than they're spending to start an airline. So it must be bigger than just that, which is why I said it might be about employment or government, you know, chutzpah, to yep. have their own airline yep. or something like that. Yeah, or maybe not open it until you get a train line out there. All right, some other news this week on pilots and airplanes, Ben. Delta announced it was partnering with a flight training program in Vero Beach, Florida, to offer financial support and a clear career path for student pilots. Delta will offer $20,000 in financial aid and cover the interest on student loans. That's great, though really just a drop in the bucket when the licenses and hours needed for an airline job can run up to $300,000. Pilots who successfully complete the program will get a conditional job offer. It's not a guarantee of a number on Delta's seniority list, but it is a clear path that will excite and motivate many students. We've seen United and others get into the pilot training business. It seems like a necessity now for the industry. I do think the support of student pilots still needs to increase significantly, both from airlines and from government. Congress, after all, raised the cost of qualification significantly and shirked any obligation to pay for its mandate. We need the best students possible for these jobs, and smart students today have plenty of options. 
One other related pilot note. I was fascinated to see a humanoid pilot robot called PyBot that is being created by the Korea Advanced Institute of Science. It's got incredibly sophisticated artificial intelligence software and is already capable of flying an airplane without any alterations to the cockpit. It has cameras to monitor airplane status, arms to operate throttles, switches, and a yoke. It can handle radio traffic with air traffic controllers and taxi a jet safely around an airport. Even more fascinating, it can process vast aviation manuals and all of the JEP charts of the world. No human pilot can do that. It can react quickly in emergencies, and it has no bad habits. Scheduled completion is 2026, only a couple years away. Obviously, Ben, it'll take a long time coming before robots are bolted into cockpits and flying passengers. I think society would have to figure out autonomous automobile driving and many other robot tasks before people would trust robots flying airplanes with hundreds of people on board. But if AI is a threat to journalism and to Hollywood script writing and to so many other jobs, and it is, then it clearly is a threat to replace pilots. You could easily see a scenario, I think, where you'd have one human pilot and one robot in the cockpit. If the single pilot became incapacitated, the robot could successfully land the airplane. If the robot blew a fuse, the human pilot would be ready to correct errors. The robot could even learn to gossip with the captain or argue over the best layover hotel in Miami or complain about slow-paced contract negotiations and boneheaded management moves. Autopilots today are amazingly skilled at flying airplanes, but we still want humans at the controls. Having a physical representation of a computer-driven pilot that would independently, smartly react to all the variables of aviating could, I say could, be a real game changer. Well, this is quite an improvement off the inflatable autopilot (laughs) from airplane. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But seriously, this is an interesting thing. It's good they're doing it because we need to know what could happen. But just because something could happen doesn't mean that it should. And I agree with you. It's going to take a long time before socially people are willing to accept getting in a plane without pilots flying it. Over the next several generations at least, Delta's approach and other airlines like theirs is the right one, especially if they're not only helping with the financing of the pilot training, but if they're casting a very wide net and bringing people into that program who haven't typically thought about becoming pilots. If they can do those two things, Delta and everyone else training pilots, that'll be the best thing for the next few generations, at least, Scott. Yeah, you know, Ben, we didn't talk about it last week enough uh, with, with Doug Parker, 
but he's at work setting up a nonprofit to help train minority pilots. Um, and and I think that's that's exactly what you're talking about. We we need a a, a bigger pool, a broader net. Um, but I, I think this industry, for, for lots of reasons, for, for cultural reasons, for financial reasons, um, has been very dominated by white males. And, uh, and we, need to, we need to get away from that and, uh, and, and open it up more, make it easier uh, for other people who don't, you know, don't have the financial resources of, of several years of training costing $300,000. Um, to become a, a commercial airline pilot. I agree, Scott. And to be clear, my view is we don't need fewer white males. We just need more of everything else. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So Airlines Confidential relies on its sponsors who make this podcast possible. We want to thank our sponsor, Doohop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Doohop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lower costs, and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, like we've been talking, Doohop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit dohop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P.com. And we want to thank our sponsor, Pratt & Whitney. At Pratt & Whitney, the pursuit of more sustainable aviation is foundational. For decades, Pratt & Whitney has been at the forefront of revolutionary advancements in aircraft propulsion technology. And by working smarter, cleaner, and greener today, they are committed to supporting the aviation industry in its goal of reaching net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. Learn more about Pratt & Whitney's smarter technology, cleaner fuel, and greener business at prattwhitney.com. Now we're excited to talk to Candace McGraw. Candace McGraw is the Chief Executive Officer of Cincinnati Northern Kentucky International Airport and has more than 30 years of aviation operations and legal experience. She has led a remarkable transformation of CVG from a Delta hub to a now thriving regional airport that has become a hub of e-commerce cargo. It's great to have you on Airlines Confidential, Candace. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to join you today. So let's start with some of your background. You have a law degree. How does a lawyer end up running an airport? Well, just by happenstance, to be perfectly honest with you, I um, began my legal career in Cleveland as a municipal lawyer. And as you may know, in Cleveland, the airport is owned and operated by the city. And uh, the airport was in need of a lawyer. And I was thrown into the mix and grew to love the business. So I went from being the airport lawyer into airport management. How great and what a great way to come into the business. Well, Cincinnati has been at the center of some of the most profound changes in at least U.S. aviation. Tell us about the transformation from a Delta hub with their regional carrier Comair and some of the other things you have done 
to keep the airport thriving? Yeah, so I've been here at the Cincinnati airport since the end of 2009. I came here as the chief administrative officer and I've just celebrated my 12th year in the position of CEO in July. So it's been an extraordinary ride It's at CVG, as you noted, many years ago. We were once one of the major Delta hubs. Um, and actually, this airport was the start of Comair Airlines. And the building in which I now sit was at one time the Comair headquarters. Hmm. So as you know, when um, Delta and Northwest merged, um, you know, CVG um, ceased to be a focus hub for Delta. So when I took over my role, you know, that was Delta was already in the process of, uh, you know, de- decreasing the level of service here. But we looked around and said, you know, we need to really diversify our business, right? It's It, it doesn't make sense for any business inclusive of an airport to rely solely on one customer. And that's what the folks here did, right? And Delta was a tremendous partner and still continues to be a tremendous partner, but we definitely needed to diversify our business. So we took a look around and said we had a campus of 7,700 acres and we had, you know, just the two other um, legacy carriers here, no low cost carriers, but we also had DHL. So we set apart about on a plan to diversify our carrier base, right, to grow the legacy carriers, to attract low-cost carriers, and then said, you know, we have to help DHL grow in any way possible. So we did that. And then with our 7,700 acres, we dug in and said, what can we develop both for aviation-related purposes and non-aviation-related purposes? So it's it's been quite the journey. Happy to report now we're the second largest operation in the world for DHL. We are the largest operation in the world for Amazon. We have, you know, a tremendous amount of both aviation and non-aviation tenants that all continue to pay their rent even now and through the pandemic. And we have a variety of passenger carriers, inclusive of a number of uh, low-cost carriers. So I think the key for us was diversification and just staying focused on that path. Um, and with that, we're, you know, in really good financial shape, happy to report. And I'm curious about those those low fare uh, competitors. How has the Cincinnati community reacted to that? Does the business community still lament the loss of the hub or has it embraced the new service? Well, you know, I mean, the, the hub ceased to operate here as a hub probably, you know, 15 years ago now, right? Or, you know, the the decline of the then big hub. So there aren't, there are a number of folks who still remember it and, and uh, miss that loss of service, but we've made up for it in the diversification of carriers. I mean, all of whom have been tremendously successful here. You know, at one time in the industry, we were the highest airfare airport, not our cost, but the highest mm-hmm. airfare airport. I remember now, writing about that. <laughs> yeah. And thankfully, we've been the lowest airfare airport in our region for probably almost the last five years. So I think, um, you know, everybody is definitely embraced the variety of services and it's definitely brought um, an airfare discipline that our community really enjoys. You know, on average, I think our people here are paying about $240 less a ticket now 
that they did back, you know, when we were the highest airfare airport. I'm sure they love that. Exactly, right? (laughs) One complaint the airports who've lost a hub sometimes have is the loss of international service. Have you lost some of that? Well, um, apparently, you know, back in the day, and this was even before I was here, you know, 13 years ago now, you know, there was a variety of international service offered. Um, We have always retained the Paris service uh, through Delta. And this past year, we've added on in June, uh, British Airways service to London. So we have great connectivity into London and into Paris. And of course, we've maintained service into Canada. And then we have all of the great, uh, you know, vacation destinations um, into, you know, Mexico and the Caribbean. So um, I think for an airport our size, and particularly for an airport in this part of the country, for many years, um, that Paris service was the only transatlantic service offered in all of Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana. So it was really a um, dearth of service here in this part of the world. But it sounds like you have a nice portfolio now. That's, that's, I, I would say our folks have done a very good job in building out the air, air service portfolio. It's been a focus of ours, right? Is air service, passenger service, and now cargo service. That's your raison d'etre is to move people in boxes and you know, we're, we're keenly focused on it. Well, another significant change is that you've modernized use agreements with the airlines, I assume, to prevent gate hoarding. How have the incumbent airlines reacted to this kind of change? Well, you know, when we talk about modernized use agreements here, we have to remember our agreement with with Delta and the other, actually the signatory carriers had been in place for 40 plus years. So it's not, you know, they were, they were well past their prime. So when we modernized the use agreements, we were gate rich and frankly, we still are gate rich. Um, So that wasn't our issue. It was more about maintaining some sort of control over having gates shared by carriers if we need to, to, right? That they were all exclusive use previously also about um, how we can effectuate our capital program. It gives the uh, airport more control, more direct control over our our future and the capital plan and not resting control just solely with a carrier or a group of carriers. So all of that to say, I think we've done a nice job of uh, making sure we have partnerships with the airlines versus an unequal distribution of power between the carriers and us. Well, Candace, I hope you don't mind if I quote you on that, because I teach a class to college students at George Mason, and when we talk about airports and airlines, I talk about exclusive use, preferential use, and common use, and I tell them, The airports have moved away from exclusive use because it's hard for them to manage their asset base. And so I'd love to quote you on what you just said. Yeah, please do write. It it is. It's, you know, um, 
just like, you know, you need to diversify, you also, you don't want somebody tying up your assets, right? It has to be a way to use your facilities in a smarter way. Um, while I know, you know, it's an issue in the industry and, and it's hotly contested at some airports because your gates are, you know, at a premium, you can't do that, right? It's all about what you need to focus on for the benefit of the passenger and the benefit of the community. So where do you see the future of regional airports going, especially when things like a, a pilot shortage may restrict uh, the kind of flight frequency that smaller cities have enjoyed in the past? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. The, the uh, pilot shortage is a real issue facing this industry, you know, as, as people are um, aging out. Um, and we're not filling the pipeline as rapidly as we did, right? So the large hubs, the large cities are always going to have the level of air service that they need or, and if airlines, you know, and Ben knows this better than most, right? Airlines are always going to put those, those pilots and aircraft in those particular cities and it's going to trickle down to the rest of us. So I think it's incumbent for all of us to figure out how do you tackle this workforce challenge and, uh, because it is a real issue. My, my colleagues that are in the sm- very small airports, the small hubs, have faced this, and, and, and folks at airports my size will continue to face this if we don't address that pipeline issue. We talk a lot on the podcast about the challenges airlines face, but tell us about the challenges airports are facing. For example, Many are probably familiar, like bad weather, disrupting operations, and labor shortages. But what are some of the biggest and some of the unique challenges that airports are facing right now? Well, I think, you know, you noted, of course, the workforce challenge, workforce shortage. That issue is not unique to airlines, airports, or frankly, most every industry at this point, right? It's making sure you have um, talented uh, workforce. And on our case, on campus, right, we have 7,700 acres that need to be maintained and having people show up. You know, in in the case of airports, you know, we're, we're often located away from high density population areas. So you have to make sure your people can get to work, transportation challenges. It's 24 seven, often in in inclement weather, as you noted. So uh, workforce challenges. I think another issue airports are faced with, again, not unique to our industry, but you know we're highly regulated. And there's a lot of different mandates that are foist upon us that are often unfunded. And it's how do you figure out um, how to allocate your precious resources in the most effective way possible? You know, for instance, most recently, there's a new provision going to go in place about random employee screening being in place 24-7 throughout airports for all of your different locations. Well, you know, just looking at that, I think it's going to cost us you know, probably at least half a million dollars between now and the end of the year. And that was certainly not budgeted at the beginning of the year. So that's an issue. You know, a variety of other issues, you know, environmental concerns that, you know, airports are faced with, with um, 
you know, the many acres we have, the variety of chemicals that are out there. Again, nothing unique to our industry, but just um, in a microcosm here on a very um, small little piece of property that has the issues that every city, every business has. Well, Candace, I'm sure you're very familiar with the PFC issue. What is Cincinnati's view on raising the cap on PFCs? And how do you respond to airlines who say that could depress demand? Yeah, so I, I don't know, Ben, are we going to have to square off on this issue? <laughs> you know, you, you know um, the PFC, the passenger facility charge, has not been raised in decades. You know, charging $4.50 uh, extra to help maintain um, a very large deteriorating infrastructure will do nothing to the price of a ticket. It will do nothing to depress demand. Um, you know, I'll put my $4.50 PFC up against a, a bag service charge, a bag fee any day of the week, right? So I think it's a spurious argument. And it's, you know, the PFC issue is all about control. And I wish we would get over it. You know, I spent spent more than $4.50 this morning on my cup of Starbucks coffee. So, um, you know, and there was a big long line of cars in front of me and behind me in line today, and we all paid more than $4.50. So I think we should figure out a way to move on from this silly conversation. (laughs) Well, Candace, it certainly looks better than the $35 AIF up in Toronto. Well, you know, exactly. Right. And I think um, I think that's analogous. But I also think, you know, when you look in Toronto or, you know, some of my Canadian colleagues, it's based on what they need to manage their airport and it's negotiated out. And if I had my druthers. I think I think that's a great way of doing it. Um, you know, in absence of that, I would think, you know, Congress here should look at either indexing the current PFC, you know, bring it up. I'd, I'd love to have it unfettered and say it's up to every airport to manage their business like the business it is and, and negotiate with the airlines on what that fee should be. But, you know, I, I don't think that will come to pass. Well, between you and our friend in Pittsburgh, Christina, I think you have me convinced. Oh, what? <laughs> Can I call you on that? Well, good. Well, good. I, I was just going to add the context of I think Starbucks is a great comparison because the longest lines in an airport are often at, at Starbucks. Right. I think if you asked any passenger, one, I don't think very many people know what the heck a PSC is. And two, if you'd say, look, if it would help me um, modernize this terminal faster, help me build better infrastructure, help with passenger facilitation. Would you be willing to pay more than $4.50? I think the answer would be universally yes. And, and I do think the airport industry has become a lot more competitive where, you know, it used to be seen as sort of a uh, local utility, uh, a local monopoly. Um, but now you're competing with other airports for air service and competing for passengers as well. And so there is, you know, if you are running the business, there there is some incentive to keep those charges as low as you can. Well, definitely, right? You know, I if, if any of your listeners are familiar with the geography of Cincinnati Airport, we have Dayton Airport about 45 minutes north of us. I have Indianapolis and Columbus airports within a two-hour drive, and then I have Louisville and Lexington, both within about an hour and a half drive, right? So 
while um, I, you know, I admire and respect all those people that run those airports, they're also frenemies. We're 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 yeah. competitors, and so we're going to be very mindful of our costs and how do we maintain any sort of competitive advantage. So, you know, my business is no different than any other business, and those are the things that we would take into consideration. So I'm impressed with the with the catchment area of CVG that you're able to support international flights to, to Paris and, and to London. Um, do you think there's the population there will ever regain passenger hub status? What would create the need for having a passenger hub at the airport? Yeah, passenger hub, tough, tough slog, right? Not within the current, not with the current carriers that are out there, you know, I have talked to some emerging carriers or carriers that are looking to grow, right? Just look at their footprint. And I say, you know, consider the location of Cincinnati. There was a reason why we were a hub back in the day, um, given the location and the, and the workforce we have here, the runway infrastructure we have here, you know, there's a reason we were a hub, but, you know, given the carriers that are out there now, you know, in the environment, I tell people in the community, um, we're not going to chase after a passenger hub, right? That's it's. We're in good shape, and we'll we'll maintain our position as a key cargo hub. Well, airports have a unique window on air travel and aviation. What do you see as the future of air travel? What are the challenges the industry needs to address? over the next couple of years, Candace. Well, I'll tell you, I, I love aviation. I love the wonder of it, the magic of it, and I wish we could reignite that. You know, every time I get in an aircraft and, you know, I'm ready to take off to go from here to, you know, wherever it may be domestically or around the world, isn't it amazing to sit in this metal tube and within a matter of hours, you know, you're on the other side of the globe. And so I think... I would love to see what the future of advanced air mobility looks like. How do we how do we grow that segment? What is that going to look like? How's that going to impact current air service? How do we integrate that in and how can we make that part of this, right? I think we need to keep innovating and developing and I worry that you know, some of my colleagues either in the airport or just aviation industry in general are not going to embrace some of these new, great, interesting, wondrous technologies. Um, and I hope we do that. I think we're certainly going to go to a more um, um, green, sustainable focus. You know, I talked to my colleagues in Europe, and that's certainly an issue that, you know, is really plaguing some of them is how do we develop um, sustainable aviation fuel more quickly? All of those things, I think, are tremendous opportunities that I hope we lean into versus regulate ourselves and um, worry ourselves to death over. I think we need to keep our spirit of adventure and innovation and just keep moving forward. And with that, it, it seems that the industry seems to struggle with attracting and retaining female leaders. As a female CEO, what do you see as the challenges to diversifying management in the industry? What can be done better? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question, right? In the U.S., we have a good number of women who are airport CEOs. 
Um, I think we have more in the U.S. and in Canada. Well, I know we have more in the U.S. and Canada than, than any other place in the world. I um, have the privilege of serving as the vice chair of our Airport Council International World Board. So it's a trade association representing airports around the world. And it and I've been on that board for a number of years. And we have right now currently three women board members and myself as vice chair. And it's something I'd like to dig into also at the global level. So what we'd like to do is start leaning into this, first gathering our numbers because the data out there I don't think is very good, and then finding out how we can grow that segment. You know, as I said, I love my job, and this industry has been so good to me and good to my, my female colleagues, and I'd love to bring more people into it. It's a workforce imperative to make our – industry more inclusive of women, of people of color, of different demographics, of people with differing abilities, right? And so, you know, I'm not sure what the issue is, right? I think, you know, I served on the Women in Aviation Task Force that um, former Secretary Chow put together, and we talked about, you know, a matter of um, first letting women know that this is a great career choice. Once women are into it, how do you, how do you accommodate for, um, you know, women that are trying to raise a family in a 24-7 environment and how can we make it more family-friendly? How do you keep women in the ranks and grow them through leadership to become a CEO of an airport or an airline? Um, And how do you get those um, male colleagues around them to be supporters, mentors, sponsors, et cetera? So I think it's a multifaceted issue. I think Thankfully, we're doing better in the U.S. than elsewhere, but we still have a ways to go. I agree, Candace, and I have an idea that I'd like your thoughts on. As part of this effort, I think we need to start very, very young. By that, I mean having cartoons, videos, things that young girls look at, that show girls flying planes, running airports, fixing planes, that sort of socializes at a very young age that women can do these jobs. Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly, right? It's definitely an issue of you have to see it to be it. And we talked about this and part of the recommendation I would of that Women in Aviation board. And I would... Um, recommend any of your listeners to go to the FAA website. It was a great report, and it talked about that. You know, um, women in all facets, be it manufacturing or of the mechanics of the pilots, um, just changing the language that we use and making it more gender inclusive, I think, opens it up for women. So I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I'd also ask your folks if they want to look at something I think was a marvelous program that National Aviation Hall of Fame had done, I want to say a year or two ago, um, and it was focused on this exact issue. They came out with coloring books and stories of women in aviation from, you know, Bessie Coleman, everybody knows Amelia Earhart, right? And just telling those stories and letting little girls see themselves in those stories. And it was a great uh, campaign run by the National Aviation Hall of Fame. Well, Candace, I bet when you're at a party 
and people find out you're CEO of a big airport, they all ask for travel tips or how to get a cheap fare. Do you have any favorite tips that you share? Um, well, they certainly ask for tips, but that only comes after I hear all their latest travel horror stories, right? Whatever that <laughs> be. Then, then we get around to the tips. So um, I don't have any unique tips, but my I will tell you, I never check a bag. And I always tell people, try to avoid checking a bag if you can, right? It makes sure you're in control of your experience. We all have different, um, you know, IROPs that happen, you know, different different interruptions to our travel plans. It gives you the ability to uh, change your flights, uh, make your flight more quickly, have control over your, your own destiny. So I say, hang on to your bag. Well, I love that tip and I've loved the conversation. Um, it's been great talking with you. I think we've all learned a lot and, uh, and really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Dave. I enjoyed the conversation as well. And I'm, and I'm going to quote Ben on the PFC issue. <laughs> you can, Candace. And thank you. And we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. Thanks again to Candace for a very interesting discussion. Another very dynamic airport leader, and it's great to meet her. Scott, Steve from Canton, Ohio, has an interesting question, given our discussion on robots as a remedy for the pilot shortage. Steve asks, with all the talk about pilot shortages, We don't hear much about aviation maintenance technicians and that looming shortage. Some would argue the shortage is already here. What's your take on this and how will the industry adapt? What do you think, Scott? Ben, I think Steve raises a great point, and I do think there are similarities. We've seen robots take up a lot of functions in the manufacturing process. Go to a Boeing or Airbus assembly line and you could see a whole lot of robots, just like auto manufacturing. I think that could happen in aircraft maintenance as well. I'm reminded of a conversation I had years ago with the late, great Bob Baker, who ran operations for American for many years and was a prince of a man who spent a lot of time teaching me and others how the industry really worked. Bob was very proud when Toyota sent a team to American's Tulsa maintenance base to learn. It was the height of Japan's automotive manufacturing prowess when U.S. automakers were struggling to match quality and cost. I told Bob, I meant no disrespect, but why was Toyota, the manufacturing king, sending a team to American? Because we have to take them apart and put them together, Bob snapped. It was a good reminder of the complexity of aircraft maintenance. Ben, I think the answer to Steve's question is that we need financial aid and incentives for more people to become aircraft mechanics, just like we do for the pilot labor market. There will always be a need, and it can be fascinating work in a really dynamic industry. Plus, you get flight benefits. I agree, Scott. You know... We talk about pilots all the time. 
Because if you look at an airline's salary, wages, and benefits line, usually about 50% of that number is the pilots at that airline. Mm -hmm. And everyone else in the airline, and everyone else in the airline earns the other 50%. That doesn't mean that Steve is wrong. He's absolutely right. We need great mechanics too. And we need good people working in the airport and talking to customers and working at res. But maintenance, like pilots, more than airport jobs, are trained jobs where the longer you're on the job, the better you get at it. When you think about robots affecting airport maintenance the way they do at Airbus or Boeing, as you pointed out, I could see that more on sort of the six-year heavy check work that is prescribed and routine. It's going to take a long time before I think a robot could meet the pilot, the pilot tell them what gauges aren't working right or what he or she felt that the mechanic needs to look at. That's going to take a while longer. But I agree with you. We have to stop ourselves from talking only about pilots when we talk about trained professional shortages in the airline industry. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Great point. Okay, Ben, one more listener question. I'm not sure how much you can get into this one, but it's a very interesting question, not just for the airline industry, but also for all companies going through a merger or acquisition. Ryan, who writes from Medellin, Colombia, says, Hey guys, big fan of the show. I've listened to all 200 episodes and have gained so much knowledge from you all. I have a question about how an airline C-suite should prioritize their business. I fly yellow buses for a living. He means he's a pilot for Spirit. And enjoy working for the company. However, since the merger with Frontier was announced and then the deal with JetBlue, I can see firsthand how our operation is failing. I think there is a direct correlation between the two. Prior to any mergers being announced, my airline was constantly making changes to improve the business and cement it into being a serious contender in the industry. New technology, aircraft orders, improvements to IT, and most importantly, constant updates from management on where we stood and what our vision looked like were all things we once enjoyed, Ryan says. However, he continues, now it seems like management is laser focused on closing this transaction and meanwhile is neglecting our operation and our standalone vision. I want this merger to happen, Ryan says, so I understand the importance of getting it past the finish line. But in the event it doesn't happen, I'm afraid there will be no standalone carrier to go back to. Management is simply wagering our future by focusing only on a what if and not on a for sure thing. Thanks again, Ryan. Ben, I think this is a common situation with any company being acquired. You may be reluctant to invest in systems or people 
that would be redundant once the deal is done. You do lose focus because there's so much to do to get the deal done. You may lose managers who seek opportunities elsewhere, thinking that their job might be eliminated once the two companies combine. Since you are a member of the JetBlue Board of Directors, you probably don't want to talk about this particular situation at Spirit, but you've been around others and certainly have watched them. What do you say to Ryan? It's a great question, Ryan, and thank you for your question. Thanks for flying the big yellow buses, too. You know, when I was at U.S. Airways, before 9-11, the company had a deal to be acquired by United Airlines. I'm sure many listeners remember that. Mm -hmm. And during that time, it was amazing how so many things at U.S. Airways just stopped. No more development to the website because we're going to get United's website, right? And take that around everything that happened. So this is one of the challenges with any merger of anywhere, but especially in the airline industry. Airlines that aren't moving forward are moving backwards. There's no standing still. Spirit has made very good changes for its customers and, according to Ryan, for its employees as well. And that's probably one of the reasons that two companies, Frontier and JetBlue, were both so interested in buying them. So it's not like those changes were a mistake. But in the meantime, when the deals are announced but not yet done, it is really important for both companies. And I'm not only talking about JetBlue and Spirit. I'm talking about any company in a prospective merger to keep in mind, to sort of keep parallel paths in their mind. Here's the world if the merger happens. And here's the world if it doesn't. And both of those have to be fully flushed out. And both of those have to be well communicated to the rank and file. Because you can't have employees thinking, if the deal doesn't happen, we're a fish out of water. Because that's not the case. And it shouldn't be the case. So... Managements get busy at companies. They clearly want a merger they've announced to happen, but it doesn't take away their obligation to create those two clear paths if it happens and if it doesn't and bring confidence to the labor groups and to all the employees that the company has a plan under either path. Thanks again, Ryan. I hope this works just like you, and I hope you get those two paths also. And thanks for listening to all 200 episodes, Ryan. That's all for the first 201 episodes of Airlines Confidential. Have a great week, everyone. And thanks again to Candace McGraw. We'll see you all next week. 
This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.